Good morning, Living Stones. Oh, that was, that was kind of weak. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Appreciate it. Super Bowl Sunday. Come on, people. I'm not sure if any of your teams made it to this point, but I'm still, uh, I'm still rooting for the Lions, maybe. Right? And some of you uh, are rooting for some other teams that aren't, haven't made that in there, but at any rate. Oh, well. We'll, we'll have a good time anyway today. Uh, I, um, my favorite restaurant in South Bend is Fiddler's Hearth. Anybody there with me? Okay. I love fish and chips wrapped in the South Bend Tribune. You can't do any better than that. But one of the reasons why I love Fiddler's Hearth, my wife and I, absolutely, it's my favorite restaurant, actually not just in South Bend, but in any place I've ever been, is because they have what's called pub-style seating. You know, what it's, you know what pub-style seating is? For individuals like me, this is like, this is fun. Because I will sit down at a table and then somebody will come up and sit next to you. You don't even know them and they need to start chatting with you and talking with you. But I know that there are some of us in, the, in here like that is so uncomfortable to, you know, and I've watched people walk into Fiddler's Hearth and, and, and there's nobody really there to seat you. I mean, you just, they just say, well, just go find a place to sit. And I know people look, what? <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> like, uh, show me where to sit by myself in my own little you know, but it kind of breaks down those barriers of comfort to sit next to somebody that you don't know and to have a conversation like that. It's just kind of this beautiful community, and it almost lends itself to kind of family, right? And so we have those same stories. We have the table that's in our home, and we invite people to the table. And if you're, if you're, table is like mine. You know, somebody will come into the house. We actually had this happen at Christmas time with us. We had a couple people that were, they were not uninvited guests, but they were individuals that we weren't counting on. And so you just pull up another, because we all have plenty of food, so it's no big deal, but you pull up a couple more chairs and, and there you go. You just sit next to other people that you might not know, did not expect, but it's not awkward at all, more or less. So. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not always necessarily that comfortable with a, a group of people that I don't know very well. Uh, how many of you like flying on a plane? Okay, I do like plane trips. I do like plane trips. But uh, regular class, you know, those of us, most of us can only afford to sit in, you know, the seats that are really tight next to each other. For me, I always like to get that exit row if I can because I've got these long long legs. And then inevitably, you sit beside somebody who, have you ever sat by somebody who's just like, they spread their legs like this, and then you have somebody on the other side that's like this, and you're like, you're in that middle seat just like that. That's uncomfortable. That's just a little bit too much out of my comfort zone. Well, I, I, gotta, I, I brought this uh, up uh, to show you. Uh, this is in my office, uh, and it actually reminds me of one of my most cherished memories of my life. Uh, this, is, this is called a tap-tap. Actually, it even says that right there, tap-tap. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a truck that uh, is a replica of those that are in Haiti, all, uh, all through the country of Haiti. You see these trucks that have been kind of converted into a, kind of like a taxi, a glorified taxi and grocery getter uh, in Haiti. And you see them all over the place. And it's just the whole, the whole uh, city of Port-au-Prince and the entire country just chaotic. I mean, uh, trucks going down the road really fast, and there's no 
I mean, they have lights, like red lights, but they never work. And it doesn't matter if they worked or not, it's always lay on the horn, get out of my way, here I come. And then the pedestrians, I mean, you literally could stick your hand out the window or out the side, and you could touch everybody that was, that was walking along the side. There's just no, no boundaries at all. And uh, so it's called a tap-tap because if you're on the truck and you want out, you just tap-tap, and they'll stop it. You jump off, get all of your groceries and all of that kind of stuff, and then they, the truck just moves right on. Um, but there's a saying, how many Haitians can you get on a tap-tap? You know what the answer is? Like in the United States, how many people can you legally have in your car? Four or five, and even five may, be feel, may feel uncomfortable with three people in the back seat. Nobody wants that middle seat. In Haiti, it's always, the answer to that question is one more. Always one more. You can get as many people on that. They're hanging off the top. And so the last time I was in Haiti, uh, uh, it, was, it was really neat because uh, they, they kind of instituted motorcycles. Uh, and I'm not talking about like Harleys and, you know, hogs, these big things. I'm talking about just like these um, just kind of small Honda kind of things. And I literally saw five people on a Honda motorcycle and a live goat strapped to the front of this thing. It's, it, is, it is chaos. It's, it's a crowd, and it's, it is, it is just, it's just ridiculous. And, and so when I think of that, this, this is what I talk about when I talk about Jesus drawing circles. Remember last week we talked about how uh, we talked about unconditional love and how it's not about the lines that we draw, okay? Because that's what we do in the church oftentimes, unfortunately. In Christianity, we draw lines, and our lines are kind of different depending on what tradition you're a part of or how conservative or how progressive you are. Our lines are in different places all over the place, but Jesus doesn't draw lines. He draws circles. He draws circles, and we are a part of that circle. I, I'm so glad that he draws circles because that circle includes sinners like me and sinners like you. Now, that, that, is, that is difficult sometimes. I don't know if you walked away last week hearing that message and thought, okay, what is that like? What is the table like that we talked about last week where we, we invite people to the table? This is our job to invite people to the table, but anybody can come to the table. Anybody can come to the table. And as we expand this table to include others, it can be uncomfortable. It will be uncomfortable. I mean, let's be honest. If we as a church are going to draw circles like Jesus drew a circle, how do you feel about that? Guess who's coming to get dinner, right? <laughs> who's coming to dinner? I don't know. But I set the table. But it will be sinners. It may be people that we don't agree with. It'll be people that may have lifestyles that I might not accept or you might not accept. All of these people are welcome to come to the table. If we say we draw a circle, if we say we are a church that demonstrates unconditional love, 
Are we ready for those who will come to dinner? Right? These are difficult questions that we must wrestle with. And more than ever, uh, we need the Holy Spirit. And so I want to pray. I want us to pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would come. Father God, we come to you uh, trying to wrestle with what you've called us to do, and we recognize, Father, that for all of us, it can be uncomfortable. As you stretch us and challenge us to be more and more like Jesus in the world, we need your Holy Spirit. Be our light. Be our life. Inform our love Holy Spirit, give us strength. In our doubts, come Holy Spirit. In our hours of weariness and grief, come Holy Spirit. And when we fail to get it right, or we live in disappointment, come Holy Spirit. And when others fail us, come Holy Spirit. And when we live in times of loneliness and despair, come Holy Spirit. We commit all of these things to you and we ask, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. Amen. Matthew wrote uh, his gospel from the perspective that he didn't fit in, right? And we've, we've mentioned this before. As, as a young tax collector, he was, he was an individual in that culture and day that was not accepted among his own people because tax collectors in those days were corrupt. They would, they would, they would, they would rob from the poor and pocket it okay, for themselves, and so they were not respected. And as a Jewish tax collector, he was an individual who would have been looked upon poorly because he was working for the enemy, right? And so he writes this gospel from that perspective. And in, in chapter 5 of Matthew, we are at the beginning of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and Matthew will begin to write about this, but I want to just pause. I want to pull back just a little bit, and I want to set the stage for this sermon, okay? Now, I, I also do want to pause. Um, I preached this sermon, parts of this sermon, back in March of 2021, and I was, I was walking earlier this week and just thinking about where we needed to go with this, and God just kept pushing on me you need to say this again. You need to say this again. So if you've heard this, some of this before, it's not the whole thing. It's just I want to pull out the Beatitudes, okay? I, I, want, us, I want us to wrestle with this today. But look at, the, look at the setting here. In Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among people. And news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, uh, with, 
those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large numbers, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I just want to give you this perspective of this crowd of people that is gathering as he's about ready to share this message. And there are people from all over. He was from Galilee. And so it'd be very common for him to have all of these people from Galilee, but he was drawing people that were not expected to be there. And, and it's really interesting, you know, talk about a crowd at your table. I mean, sometimes it just takes a handful of family members, and uh, depending on what your family is like and what you're wrestling with, a fist fight might break out as a result of this, this chaos. This is exactly the kind of thing that's happening with Jesus, because the people in Galilee, they were okay. But when you started to see people from Jerusalem and Judea coming, they were kind of they were kind of a little bit more upper crust in their faith walk. And they kind of looked down upon these hicks from Galilee who were following Jesus. But they were coming to find out, what is this man all about? And not only that, the one that really is the catcher here is the people that are from the Decapolis. Now, that's another sermon that I want to mention, but you know the story of the, of the, uh, the man who is demon-possessed and Jesus cast the demons out of, out of him to the, the, the pigs? That was in the Decapolis. And in that story, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, but the text says that he gets out of the boat, does this thing where he casts the demons into the pigs, which pigs would not have been common in the Jewish area, so this was a Gentile area, and then he gets back in the boat. The disciples never got out of the boat because they would not dirty their feet at, on the ground of the Decapolis. So now what we've got is the people from Decapolis have heard this story, they, they know what's going on, and they come to find out what's going on with him, and what does this crowd look like? What are the Jewish people thinking about these people who don't even have the same kind of faith, who are here to watch the show, if you will, they're, they're experiencing healing and miracles and all of these kind of things, and now Jesus gathers his disciples in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And now let's look at the next two verses. Now when he saw the crowds, <clears throat> he saw these people. He went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, look what it says there. I think we oftentimes look at the Sermon on the Mount, and in the days of no PA system, no microphone, that Jesus is standing up on the mountain, and, he's, and they have maybe this service, and he goes like this. Everybody sits down, and they start to listen to him. This is not what this is. Now, they may have been listening. They may have been hearing what Jesus was saying. But what's happening here in this text is Jesus is looking at the crowds, and he's saying to his disciples, you see these people? I want to talk to you about these people. I want to talk to you about these people. Again, I'm not... I, I don't know what it is about me. I just like to poke holes in all of our stories about, you know, what we typically, what we typically think about here. But this is very, very important. And I think it's very significant for us as a church because I think these messages are just are for us as well. 
that Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, as you walk around your neighborhood, as you pass out carnations today, see those crowds of people that you're handing carnations to? I want to share something about them with you. I want to talk with you about them. And so he begins to draw this circle. He begins to enlarge this circle. And then watch what he says here in the first few verses of what we know as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he's not saying, blessed are you. He's saying, blessed are they. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The literal meaning of blessed is happy are you. Or another way that you can say it is God's favor rests on you when you have these qualities. This first couple verses is showing us that Jesus' circle that he draws includes those who are broken. Now think about, think about these for just a minute. Seriously. Like I think sometimes we look at this text and we look, well, if I'm going to be happy or if God's favor is going to rest on me, well, then I need to be somebody who walks around moping all the time because that's kind of this picture that we get. The, the poor in spirit, that doesn't sound like something that I want to have. Do I want to be grieving and in mourning all the time? Absolutely not. Do I, do I need to exhibit meekness in my life? That doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem right to me. Who wants to aspire to be any of these? To be poor in spirit. What does that mean? Okay, what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that you have lived your life in such a way that your spirit is bankrupt. That, you've, that there's something about the way that you, have, you and I have lived our lives that our spirit is poor. We are broken. We are bankrupt. How about mourning? Who wants to live in that condition of grieving and loss? And it's not just just those times when we, when we lose a loved one, but when we lose our job or we, we lost some kind of a status, that, that, that position where we are grieving. And how about meek? What does it mean to be meek, to be downtrodden? I think one of the best ways that we can describe somebody who is meek, somebody who we know people like that. We maybe feel that way that we are, we, have, we are so oppressed, we are so marginalized, that there, and there's nobody there to advocate for us. That is someone who is meek. Dallas Willard would say that this is not a list of things to aspire to, but they are a pronouncement of God's blessings on all of the people that the world thinks is missing out. God is looking at the crowds of people. Jesus is looking at the crowds of the people, and you said, he says to his disciples, you see these people? My favor rests on them. My favor rests on them. Whenever we are struggling in these ways, God's favor is resting on each and every one of us. Not when you get the Spirit, but before you receive the Spirit, God's favor rests on you. 
And then he goes on to say, verse 7, bless you. Yes, blessed. <laughs> so I just had to, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So this next circle that, that Jesus draws is this circle that values people who minister to people who are broken. The first half, nothing that we want, but we find ourselves there in places of brokenness. But this second half, these are the people that reach out and minister to people who are broken. Think about this for a minute. The first one, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, who needs mercy more than somebody who is bankrupt in spirit? Who has, who, the person who needs forgiveness and they have not found it, they need somebody who is going to say, I forgive you. And I show you God's forgiveness. When the rest of the world, even in our church world, our Christian world says, you have no place here, our church says, I give you mercy. I welcome you to the table. You are here. Wow. That's the kind of relationship that God desires to, to restore. And you and I have that opportunity to be the hands and the feet and the voice of God to say, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. How about the second one? The second one that says, pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, correlate it with the one above it. What's the second one? The person who mourns, who is sad, who is grieving. What does the person who is grieving need more than somebody who is undistracted? Oh, my gosh. We are so busy. And I think sometimes, and I know I do this, where I just... I, I, I think I, I, I will say I'm so busy because I want you to be impressed with my busyness. Like, I'm so busy and I'm so important. But what if, what if we stop being so busy so that we could be undistracted in heart to sit next to the person who is hurting because they are in loss? That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to use you to be there to sit with people who are grieving and who are mourning and who are sad. That's what the world needs. How about the third one? Blessed are the peacemakers. When, when do you need a peacemaker? When there's conflict, when there's war, when there, there, there is this, uh, uh, these, this div, um, division, okay? The person who is meek, has no voice, needs a peacemaker who will bring voice. They will bring advocacy. They will, bring, they, will, they will be the voice for the person, or more than just being the voice for the person who doesn't have a voice, is going to look at the other person and say, what do you have to say about this? What can you bring to that? One of the worst things that we can do is to stand up and say, well, I'll be your voice and I'll, I'll, I'll advocate for you, and, and that person never does get a voice. But what if we just shut up? 
<laughs> we, we, are, we are so full of words about the way that other people, that we think that other people ought to live. But what if we instead said, I give you voice. I bring you to the place where you can speak up. And instead of living in meekness, you're valued. You're honored. What is he trying to communicate here? What is it about these beatitudes, these ways to act and to live that Jesus wants us to understand? What does God want us to understand? He wants us to live a life that is real, that is transparent and vulnerable, that is not ashamed of all of these things that God leaves and remains in our lives because he wants his glory to shine through those things. And I think that's the big message here in the Beatitudes, that we are, when we are in our, in our brokenness, we minister to people who are broken. I don't have all of the answers. I don't have the, I don't have the remedy, but what I can do is I can live my life in a way that I point to somebody who is the remedy. And that's what people desire and need to hear. It's what you and I need to hear. People don't need to hear from us how to behave. People need to see how we live through the pain and struggle that life brings and how we walk it out. People don't need to hear words. They need to see actions. People long for someone to come sit with them in their mess to spend time, not just fix them and walk away, but to truly love on them. The world, think about this. The world does not look loved on. It looks... It looks like the crowds that Jesus saw. And as he points, to his, points them out to his disciples, they, they perk up and they listen to what he's saying. So what is your... Let's, let's pause for a moment and think about where you are. Because been, I've been sharing this message, this series, uh, uh, just here at the beginning, talking about how we display unconditional love but I believe that God wants to do something among us even now. What are you carrying? Is it possible that what you are carrying around right now is a gift that God wants you to share and to be generous with? The poor in spirit need to see God's kingdom that brings the world what the world does not have, and that is mercy. And for us that are mourning, for whatever reason we are maybe mourning, we need to see the hope of God renewed through a heart that is pure and undistracted. And those of us that are meek and are downtrodden, have no voice, we need someone who will stand in the gap and do the hard work of bringing peace to brokenness. Now, if you have, if you have your Bible in front of you, um, you might notice that this portion of the text looks a little bit different than the rest. Um, it actually looks like a poem. 
And that's because that's what it is. It really is a poem. There's a balance to it, right? We've already pointed out the balance. And when you take that, when you take these things that are of need and you take these ways of ministering and you fold it up on itself, you'll notice I skipped the verse. What verse did I skip? Verse 6, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, righteousness is a church word. <laughs> what does it mean? I, I think if I polled all of you today and you raised your hand and you spoke up about, oh, this is what I know righteousness to be, we'd get about 20 different definitions about it. And many of us would probably be like, I've never really thought about that before. What does righteousness really mean? Sometimes I think we think it means clean living or keeping the rules, but that's not what it's all about. In fact, Jesus will kind of pick it apart a little bit. If you go down to verse 20 in the same, just a little bit later, Jesus is going to point out, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that or surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I, we look bad about on the, on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, only because Jesus confronted them. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the respected religious leaders. They were the, the pastors and the preachers and the elders, if you will. They really truly were men who are respected for their knowledge of the text. And the people would go to these people who were devoted into the text, and they would get guidance and direction. And Jesus is saying, you see those religious people who seem to have it all right? If your righteousness doesn't surpass them, the kingdom is not here. The kingdom is not going to come. So what is he saying? These Pharisees were the chief rule keepers because they wanted to protect something. But Jesus was more righteous than them. It wasn't just about keeping rules. It was about walking out their faith and living a life that impacts others. And it carries with it an idea that with my life, I live it generously. The, the, the Greek word for righteousness is sedeka. I'm sorry, the Hebrew word for righteousness is sedeka. Righteousness, generosity. It is the act of voluntarily giving without limitations in time or amount. I like to say time and space. That it's, it, is, it is not about just keeping a list of rules and behaving a certain way. But uh, I, I look at my life and I see that I have something to offer and I'm not just giving little bits of it. I am generous with all of this that I'm giving. And whatever God has given you, whatever gift that you have, Hold your life out with open hands. Not afraid that somebody is going to come and take it out of your hand. If they do, glory to God. But you pour it out. You're generous with it. And that's what the world was not seeing from the Pharisees. Which causes Jesus to say later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It wasn't, it wasn't these people, it wasn't a person like 
I'll be after I'm done preaching this sermon today, ready for my, my dinner and my nap. It is somebody who is so wearied by trying to keep up with rules and regulations. And Jesus is saying, no, wait a minute. My teaching, my yoke is not a burden. I desire to give you rest from those things that hold you and bind you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world was so weary of the religion that the Pharisees were sowing, and today the world is weary of the religion that we show as a church. And if we want to be righteous, we need to quit trying to be rule followers. Instead, be generous with our life. And so we take Jesus' example and we draw big circles when we live our lives generously without limit or prejudice. Instead, we open up our hands. We sit down with people in their mess and we stop trying to fix them. Remember, that's not my job. My job is to set the table. When I set the table, People come to the table where Jesus sits and he does the fixing because he will get it right every time. Now, I want to wrap this up uh, and this is kind of what draw me, drew me to this uh, passage for today. It's verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, rather, I'm sorry. Blessed are you. Now, what, see what he did there? The whole time he was saying, blessed are they, blessed are they. He was looking at the crowds and he was saying to the disciples, look at those people. These are the people that I'm talking about. But right now, now I want to point to you. Peter, Andrew, James, John. Mary, Martha these disciples that would sit with him. And now that I've told you about these crowds, I'm, I'm going to look at you and I want to say, blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you and I do the hard work of blessing those and bringing peace to the broken world, there are going to be people in our lives that aren't going to understand what we're doing. There are going to be people that will criticize our circle drawing well, and the question is, what will happen when I start drawing the circle and begin to, to encompass those who are on the outside? Here's what Jesus was teaching. Jesus saw this widely varied crowd, which made his disciples very uncomfortable. Like, he acknowledged that. You know, those people from the Decapolis that you didn't want to go see? They're here, and I'm pronouncing a blessing on those people. And notice the change in the pronoun, blessed are you. When we draw these circles, 
it's going to be difficult. It'll be difficult for me. It'll be difficult for you. But I, ours should be the last generation of families and parents and people within the church who go through life's pain feeling isolated and without hope. And what I mean by that is this. There are, there are things in our world that we look at, and even though we say we love and we say we draw this circle, we exclude people because we don't want to deal with tough topics. We don't want to deal with people who are, are wrestling with homosexuality. We don't want to deal with the topics of loneliness and depression because we don't know how to speak to those kind of things. And you name it. What is it that you have a struggle? What is it that we have a struggle with, even as a church? But if we are going to, as a church, carry out our mission, we need to be there to help parents and teenagers and give a vision of help and hope to carry those things, to bring people to the table where I might not know the answer and you might not know the answer, but we come to the table and we let Jesus bring us the answer. Ours, again, should be the last generation to have to walk alone. In the next couple weeks, I want to I deal with this even in more detail. And I want us to talk about what it looks like to love our children when they bring something to the table that just rocks our world. When they, we need to desire to build a supportive community where families know they are not alone in the church. Listen, (laughs) listen to this. There's too much loneliness in the world. But the church should not be the place where you feel the most alone. It should be the place where you feel the most welcome. What would it look like if, if our church was, when people look at our church and they, and, they, and they say, I want to talk about these issues because I know that when I do, that somebody is going to wrap their arms of love around me and walk with me through that. What are our parents going to, those of us who are parents that walk through that, to know that we are not alone when we come to the church. But this is the place, this is the first place not the last place. It's the unexpected place, but it's the first place we come. This is where the kingdom of God will come in power. This is the place where God, together as as we partner with him, will bring peace out of chaos. Amen? Father God, uh, thank you. Thank you for lending us your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for the unity that you uh, bring us as a congregation. Even in the midst of 
the differences that we might have and the convictions that we hold. Thank you, Father, for challenging us to let go and to let you lead. Humble us, Father, in your presence. Bring us together so that we might wrestle together with these. Help us, Father, to see beyond those convictions, those words, those long-held whatever they are, and to see the eyes of a person that you have created in your image. To see Jesus Christ. We come before you, Father, um, maybe even with repentant hearts. We ask that you would change us, that you would make us ready, that your Holy Spirit would move in power among us. And as we commit ourselves to the mission that you have given us, help us not to be afraid because you walk with us every step of the way and you convince us, Father, that we are not alone. Thank you, Father, for the message that we are your beloved sons and daughters. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.